the United States of America has about 150 ambassadors that represent our country to the different nations around the world. They serve at the pleasure of the president and are supposed to represent our interests. They find themselves meeting various levels of success in their missions. Um, there are various levels of receptiveness in the different countries to which they have been assigned. And in a similar fashion, the Lord God of heaven and earth has commissioned servants in this world to represent him, to accomplish his will on the earth. He has called them and equipped them and given them a mission. Men like Abraham, Moses, Joshua, and David are referred to in the scripture as the servants of God. Isaiah himself, the prophet who wrote this passage under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is referred to as the servant of God. But throughout the second half of this book, Isaiah has been speaking under inspiration about an ideal servant, a servant of the Lord that surpasses all other servants in obedience and in the success of his mission. This servant is uniquely commissioned by the Lord, full of the Lord's Spirit to accomplish God's purposes in the world. He is utterly obedient to the Lord. I mean, he gives his whole body, everything that is part of his power, he gives to the Lord to accomplish the purpose of Jehovah in salvation. And he is supremely successful in finishing the mission that God gave him to finish. This great servant of the Lord is the one that we sometimes refer to as God's Messiah, God's chosen one. He is identified by God himself in the New Testament scriptures as none other than Jesus of Nazareth. Our Jesus, the Savior, is this Messiah, the servant of the Lord, to accomplish God's will. And Isaiah foresaw the Lord Jesus 700 years before his birth. He prophesied under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit about Jesus' birth, about his calling while he was still in the womb about the Holy Spirit coming down upon him and empowering for ministry, about his cruel sufferings and death. Isaiah prophesied about his burial in a rich man's tomb and about his resurrection from the dead. All of this Isaiah saw by the grace and the power of God through the centuries. And this section that we've come to, Isaiah 52 and 53, where he sees that servant so clearly in the, the essence of his mission, this is indisputably one of the most foundational passages in all of the Word of God for us to really understand the nature of this servant and his mission. And so... We give our attention once again to this holy passage of Scripture, beginning in Isaiah 52, verse 15, excuse me, verse 13. 
And this morning, we're just going to look down through chapter 53, verse 3. Let us hear again this word from the Lord. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So he shall sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. May God bless this holy passage for all of us. Before we begin, I just want to show you the way the passage unfolds, just on a sort of summary level here. So look at the text in front of you, and if you... See chapter 52, verse 13. You'll notice that there the Lord is speaking. God is speaking. And the Lord is characterizing the ministry of his Messiah, of the servant, of the Lord Jesus. He's speaking about the nature of his ministry. And then in verse 14, he describes the response of many to that servant. The response of many to the servant. And then beginning in chapter 53, verse 1, verses 1 to 3, the people themselves begin to speak. So it's a shift in speaker, but the people themselves are speaking about another response, a different response altogether to the servant of the Lord. And so I just want you to see this morning this simple thing, these contrasting responses. Two contrasting responses to the servant of the Lord, the Messiah, Jesus, the Savior. And it begins this morning with God himself speaking in chapter 52, verse 13. And the Lord says this, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. We looked at that last Lord's Day. And we noticed that the Lord was predicting that the servant that he had specially chosen and called for this mission would act so wisely and so prudently as to guarantee the success of the mission for which God sent him. This servant would do what all other servants failed to do, to act in such a way as to flawlessly bring about God's purpose of salvation. He will act wisely. 
And then the Lord says about him that he will be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. So what is the Lord saying there about this Messiah, about the Christ? Well, on the face of it, he's talking about his glory. God will glorify his Messiah, right? But the rest of the chapter 53 then goes on to describe great suffering and humiliation. And so how do we reconcile that with this prophecy that he will be high and lifted up and exalted? Because throughout the rest of chapter 3, we read things like this, that his appearance was marred, his form beyond that of the children of mankind. He had no form or majesty. He was a man of sorrows, despised and rejected, stricken by God, afflicted, pierced, crushed, chastised, oppressed, and led to the slaughter. But the Lord says he will be high lifted up and exalted. And the Lord is actually going to say throughout the course of chapter 53 that his exaltation is the direct result of his suffering. The way that they're related to each other is that his exaltation is a direct result of that suffering. Look in chapter 53, verse 12. And notice again the first word. I pointed this out last Lord's Day. After describing all of the sufferings of the Messiah, the Lord says, Therefore, because of this, on account of this, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide his spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Ironically, his humiliation would be the cause of his exaltation. After, de- um, in fact, the cross will be Christ's great triumph. It would be the ultimate display of his greatest glory, which is his perfect obedience to the Father even obedience unto death. The cross, ironically, would be both Jesus' great humiliation and his great glory. For no other person, no other servant of the Lord ever obeyed to that extreme end, but this one would. Our Lord himself seemed to acknowledge the irony of the fact that His greatest humiliation would also be his greatest glory. He seemed to acknowledge that in the way that he made reference again and again to this term lifted up, which almost seems to have a kind of double meaning in the way that it's used here and throughout our Lord's references to it. Let me remind you of some of the things our Lord said while he was in his earthly ministry. In John chapter 3 and verse 14, he said this. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. You remember that story in Numbers 21? As Moses lifted up that serpent on the pole in the wilderness days, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Now that's an interesting image. And then in John chapter 8 and verse 28, Jesus uses this language again. He says, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He. 
And again, in John chapter 12 and verse 32, our Savior says, When I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to myself. And then, the very next verse, take a look. John specifically points out that he was talking about what kind of death he was going to die. What did Jesus mean by all of this talk about being lifted up? He meant, John says, that he would die a lifted up kind of death. That is, by crucifixion, being raised up on a pole. Raised up on a pole. Just like the snake in the wilderness was lifted up in that way. His death would be a lifted up kind of death, but it would also be, and here I think is the, here's the other layer of meaning. His death, not just the fact that it would be by crucifixion and raised up on a pole, but that it would be a death that would be his exaltation, his great glorious act of obedience. In fact, he says it this way, when I'm lifted up, all men are going to be drawn to me. Now, was that the case on the cross? When they lifted up that figure, men turned away their faces. They were appalled at this sight that was beyond watching. And yet, what is it that we sing about every time we come together? What is it that we glory in as believers? What is it that we rejoice in but the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ? That is the great glory of God to us, isn't it? it there is this irony about it that Isaiah captures even as he foresees it. Christ's crucifixion would be like Moses lifting up that brass serpent on the pole. Remember that the Lord had sent the serpents, these snakes, into their camp to come and bite these people because of their wickedness and their sin and their rebellion against him. This was the judgment of God. This was God's curse upon them for their wickedness. And then, in his mercy, he tells Moses, now make a serpent and put it up on a pole, raise it up from the earth, and tell all of the people to look, and whoever looks will live. And so they must lift their eyes up and to see that serpent on a pole. And Jesus was lifted up in like manner. Cursed, the Bible says, cursed is everyone who is, what? Hanged on a tree. And the Lord was lifted up as the great curse. And yet when people look to him, they are set free just as surely as the people who looked at that serpent on the pole were filled with faith and hope and were saved. This is why Jesus spoke of his upcoming crucifixion in this way. The hour is coming in which the Son of Man will be glorified. The Savior was lifted up on an instrument of humiliation and torture. But for those with eyes to really see, he is lifted up in a way that's glorious, that draws them to him, that gives them life and salvation and forgiveness. He will be high and lifted up 
and exalted. Can you see him there in your mind's eye? In shame and disgrace and yet glorified in his obedience to God and in your salvation. Well, that duality had an effect on many people. And if you look in verses 14 and 15, you see that it has an effect. And how would you describe that effect? Just go ahead and look. What does Isaiah say will be the effect that it will have on people? He says, many were what? Astonished. The effect that it's going to have on these many people is that it will cause astonishment. Many were astonished at you. Look in verse 15. Kings will shut their mouths because of him. They will be speechless. I mean, it takes something pretty amazing to astonish even kings. But they will be astonished. Now, that's a strong word, and it can mean to be dumbfounded, to be gutted, to be even appalled or horrified at something. And part of what astonishes or appalls these many who see the servant is verse 14. What is it that would have that kind of effect? Well, it would be this. His appearance. His appearance would have that effect. And in particular, the fact that his appearance would be so marred beyond human semblance. And that his form, his bodily form, would be, as it says, beyond that of the children of mankind. This doesn't mean that he would be the most disfigured person in all of human history, but it means that he would be disfigured and marred in his body, in his form, to, to be away from mankind, literally. As, as almost as if it's you, you look at that figure and you have to even question whether that's human. Isaiah foresaw a servant of the Lord who would be disfigured like that. And personally, it's hard to imagine the effects of the Roman scourging on the flesh of a human. Have you ever seen someone perhaps with an open, jagged wound? I mean, a deep wound where you can see into the flesh of that person. And here is a man whose body was laid open like that with hundreds of jagged wounds all over his body. He was whipped, the Bible says, beaten, flogged by the Romans, which would typically be done with a leather whip made of many strands. And sometimes into those strands would be embedded little bits of bone or glass and that great big burly Roman soldier would lift that thing above his head and the victim would be stripped naked and tied to a pole and that big soldier would bring that whip down with all of his might on the back of the criminal 
and he would be flogged. Here is a servant of the Lord who was yet flogged, whose body was ripped open, and time and time and time again, that soldier would bring that whip down upon his back. It's hard to imagine the grotesque effects of multiple soldiers grabbing fistfuls of hair and just yanking it, pulling it out of a person's face by the roots. It's hard to imagine what it must look like to see someone who's been beaten multiple times with a long, heavy rod as they did the body and the face of our Savior. It's hard to imagine what must have happened to the soft tissue of his nose and his ears and his face as they jammed their fists into his face and as they plated the crown of thorns upon his head. Those thorns dug into the scalp and all of the blood running out of his nose and his ears, down from his face, seeping out of open wounds and mingling together with the spit of these soldiers dripping off his chin. Isaiah foresees such a figure, and these are the only words he can use to describe it. He was marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. No wonder they were astonished, appalled. But there's something more to it than merely being appalled at his appearance or his form. Look in verse 14. There's actually a comparison here I want you to see. The way Isaiah is inspired to write this, the very first word of verse 14 is the beginning of a comparison, isn't it? As. And the second half of the comparison is found in verse what? Verse 15. So. As this, so that. So here's the comparison. As many were astonished at you, verse 15, so. He shall sprinkle many nations. So if you have a comparison, there's a point of similarity, right? So what is the point of similarity between verse 14 and verse 15? What do they have in common? What word do they share in common? The word many, right? Many are astonished in verse 14. And those many are also sprinkled in verse 15. In fact, the many is going to become a kind of specialized, almost theological term that Isaiah is going to use throughout this whole passage about the suffering of the Messiah. The many are astonished at him, verse 14. They will be sprinkled. The many will be sprinkled, verse 15. Look at chapter 53, verse 11. The servant will make many to be accounted righteous. 
Verse 12 of chapter 53, the Lord says, I will divide him a portion with the many. And then in the end of verse 12, he bore the sin of many. This is a particular group distinct from the nation as a whole who respond to the Messiah in a very different manner. These many are people who are astonished at him, who are sprinkled with his blood, who are accounted righteous because of him, who are given a portion and inheritance in him, whose sins are borne by him upon the cross. This is why we speak of his atonement as being a particular atonement. He bore the sin of the many. But there's an enlargement that comes in this comparison as well between verses 14 and 15. So look for the wording now that's different in verse 15. Not the wording that's the same, but the wording that's different enlarges this thought. And in verse 15, the many who are astonished are now what? They're astonished in verse 14 and verse 15. They're sprinkled. The many are sprinkled. And the verb sprinkle means to batter or to splash. It's used 24 times, the verb, in the Old Testament. Four of them have to do with the ceremonial sprinkling or splashing of water for the cleansing uh, in, in various ways. But 20 of them, 20 out of the 24 uses, have to do with the sprinkling or the spattering of blood. The sprinkling or spattering of blood. And we just read that the many were astonished. The many are astonished at his grotesquely marred appearance as he's beaten and whipped and struck again and again. And it's almost as if Isaiah sees this, as Isaiah sees a people in the face of this servant being beaten and struck and scourged for them, that the blood of that sacrifice as he's being Killed is splattered upon them. It's sprinkled upon them. And on the one hand, it is appalling, but on further reflection, when they are given eyes to see and they're given hearts to understand, it's amazing. It is not just suffering, it's glory to them because that blood is the blood of sacrifice. And in chapter 53, verse 10, it, the Lord's death is referred to as a sin offering, a sacrifice for sins. In the Old Testament, if you were spattered with blood, you would become what? If you came into contact with blood, you would be unclean. That's right. Why? Because blood is the symbol of death. And that is the curse for sin. So any contact with blood made you unclean, but to be sprinkled or spattered with sacrificial blood actually had the opposite effect. It cleansed a person, made him acceptable to God. Because now, instead of being himself on the receiving end of the, the curse, he is 
on the receiving end of something being made a curse for him. And an animal intentionally given as an atonement for his sins. So here, Isaiah foresees the one who suffered the curse, but whose sprinkled blood saves. And in fact, the vast majority of the times that you see this word used throughout the Old Testament, sprinkled, it refers to the application of blood sacrifices. And so the priest would take his finger or take a a branch and would dip it in the blood and would spatter or smear it. And the sprinkling of the blood provided atonement. So he would take the blood of the sacrifice and sprinkle it on the altar. It provided consecration to God. So the blood of the sacrifice would be sprinkled or spattered on the priests before their service. And it was given by God for purification, to cleanse. So the blood, for example, was spattered on the healed leper. And in that would render him ceremonially clean and acceptable to God. Remember that on the Passover night, they took the blood of the lamb and they smeared it all over their doors. And when the Lord saw that blood spattered on their doors, he would pass over them for the judgment of God had already fallen on that house, would fall in the person of the Messiah, in the person of the servant of the Lord. Isaiah was foreseeing a great multitude, many, who would have the blood of the sacrifice of God's perfect servant applied to them, that they would become identified with that sacrifice in such a way that it would have a saving effect for them. And we're going to see, as we uh, look, continue to look at Isaiah 53, that the bloody suffering of Jesus was for the sins of men, not for his own, that he suffered the wrath of God against sinners, the anger of God against the many would be born by the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. And I tell you this morning, unless you are identified with Jesus Christ in his death, have his blood, as it were, applied to you spiritually through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, then you have no atonement. You have no covering for your sin. Your sin is right there on the surface, ready to be judged by the Almighty God. But here is a sacrifice to cover your sin, to wash it away, to cleanse you. Listen, if you're not in Christ, you are like a leper that is hopelessly unclean and unable ever to come into the presence of the holy and righteous God. But the blood of the sacrifice is what it takes to wash away that sin, to cleanse you, to make you pure, to be able to come into his presence. Without that blood, there is no consecration. And rather than being dedicated to God, you're alienated from God. Rather than being his, you're separated from him forever under his judgment and his wrath because of sin. Here is the sacrifice that would atone for sins for all who were sprinkled with the blood. And the point here is this, 
that just that you either either you die or your own sin under the wrath of God or you are covered in the blood of Christ who bore the wrath of God in your place. And that blood is applied to you by faith in him. By recognition that you deserve what he suffered. His suffering was not for his own, but for my sin. His suffering was for my ungodliness. That beating and that receiving of the wrath of Almighty God was for all of the ways that I have rebelled against him. It is through acknowledging that. It is through looking to Christ in faith and calling out to him to save you through the sacrificial blood of Jesus Christ that that blood is applied to you. Is the blood of Jesus Christ covering you? Has that blood been sprinkled on your heart by the grace of the Almighty God? Have you received the Lord Jesus Christ, been identified with the sacrifice of the Savior? This is the only hope. This is the response of the many. If 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 you have Receive the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel, then you are a part of that many who are astounded, astonished, and in awe, both of his sufferings, but also of his glory as you look to the one who was lifted up from the earth. The many to whom Christ's blood are, uh, will be applied are astonished. Even their kings are in awe in the presence of this atoning Messiah. And just as they were awed by the depths of his degradation, so they are astonished at the heights of his exaltation. And these kings that are mentioned here in verse 15, who are these? They are not kings of Israel, Judah, but kings of many what? Many nations, kings of once pagan peoples, put to silence by the wonder of the sacrifice of this servant. These are kings and nations who had not had all of the divine revelation that Israel had. But now, look at the end of verse 15. But now that which has not been told them, they see. And that which they have not heard, they have come to understand. And Paul, in Romans chapter 15, talks about how he carried the good news of Isaiah's prophecy from Jerusalem all the way to the, to the farthest corners of the world, all the way to the borders of Italy, he says. I've carried the gospel all across to these many various nations of the world, not only to the Jews, but also to the Gentiles, he says. I've taken the gospel. And he says, I made it my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ has not been named, where people have never before heard the gospel. And this, he says, is a fulfillment of Isaiah 52, 15. Those who have not heard, they see. And those who have never to whom they have never known, that they understand. Because he brings the gospel to them. 
The Lord is calling many to himself from all of the nations of the earth and whoever they are. And listen, whoever you are, whatever your background is, your sins can be covered by the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you have eyes to see his glory and a heart to understand the significance of that sacrifice and to embrace him in faith. But now, if you look at the first few verses of chapter 53, there's a very different situation. Verse 1 is the exact opposite of the many in chapter 52, verse 15. Notice how they are opposites. Look at verse 1 again. Isn't this the opposite of the people in verse 15? These are people who have been told, right? These are people who have God's word. They have seen the mighty acts of God. So who are we talking about? We're talking about the Israelites who had seen God literally part the Red Sea, who had, who had heard these stories all their lives of how God brought the people through on dry land, who had seen God provide for them again and again in miraculous ways even. These are people who had received and heard prophet after prophet after prophet that God had sent to preach his word to them, to proclaim his wonders to them. These are people who were not like the nations of the world out there. These are people who were rich with revelation, but the problem is what in verse 1? What's the problem? They have God's word. What's the problem? They should know. They should see. The blood should be applied to their hearts. Who has what? Who has believed? Who has believed what he has heard from us? The problem was not lack of knowledge. The problem was lack of belief, of acceptance, of faith. And I say that because I'm I'm preaching this morning to many of you who have a lot of knowledge. You have heard the word. You've heard many sermons, perhaps. You've sat in church services before. The problem with these people is that they did not hear with faith. We're going to come back to these verses, Lord willing, in next week, but I want you to just briefly see how their unbelief was manifest. In verse 2, they were unmoved emotionally. There was no beauty in him, in their sight, that they should what? That they should desire him. There was no desire. There was no beauty in him. They, they were unmoved by him. Verse 3, they were they were willfully rejecting of him. He was despised and rejected by men. And then the end of verse 3, they were misguided intellectually. We esteemed him not. The word's an accounting term. We esteemed him. In other words, we counted him as nothing. We, we added up everything that he claimed and we brought it all down, and at the end of the day, we thought it was a great big zero. We esteemed him not. We made nothing of him. 
The response, in other words, is intellectual, willful, and emotional um, intellectual rejection, or in a word, unbelief. So some respond in verse 13 to 15 with astonishment, with awe. These are people who are sprinkled with the blood. And then in chapter 53 and verse 1, there are people who respond in unbelief, who despise, who esteem him not, who reject him, and all from unbelief. Those really are the two and only two responses that people have to the Lord Jesus Christ. They are either in awe of him or they are dismissive in unbelief. And perhaps someone might uh, object to the use of the word rejection to describe unbelief. Maybe somebody would say, well, I'm not really for Jesus, but I'm certainly not against him. I mean, I have no animus against him. I'm just not all in. I can't say I'm in awe of him, but I wouldn't say I'm rejecting of him just because I do not believe. I want to remind you that there are only two responses here. There are only two responses that are possible among mankind, either awe or unbelief. You're either in chapter 52 or you're in chapter 53, verses 1 to 3. Jesus himself said, whoever is not with me is against me. And you know, how could it be any other way considering who he is, considering who he claimed to be? I mean, he claims to be the Son of God, the Lord of Lords, the King of all. How in the world can we disbelieve his claims and not call it a rejection? The Apostle John says, Whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Listen, you can't be neutral. You are either in awe or you are in unbelief. Which is it for you this morning? Which is it for you? In 1905, the Canadian pastor A.B. Simpson wrote a hymn that reflected on the experience of Pontius Pilate. Pilate, as you know, was the Roman governor who was one of the ones who cried the Lord Jesus. And the Lord Jesus stood before him, and Pilate was forced to have to deal with what to do with Jesus. And, of course, you remember in the account of Jesus' trial that after uh, examination, Pilate came out and said, I found no fault in this man. And he was of a mind to release him. But the Jewish leaders and the people demanded his death because he claimed to be the king. And Pilate, on the one hand, was sympathetic towards Jesus, but he was unwilling to take a stand 
And finally, he brought out a bowl, you remember, and he washed his hands. And he said, see, I am innocent of this man's blood. I'm not for him. I'm not against him. I'm neutral in this. This is on, this is on you. You have decided this. And uh, when you come to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 4, the apostles stood up and began to preach the gospel. And they preached that Pilate's turning of Jesus over to the Jewish authorities to be killed was in fact a fulfillment of the second psalm that says that the rulers of God would take counsel against God and against his anointed. Here's a man who said, I'm not for, I'm not against, I'm not in awe, but I'm not rejecting. I'm just, I'm just neutral about him. And at the end of the day, you cannot be neutral because of who he is. You must either be in awe or reject. You've got to decide, was he really who he claimed to be? When he was lifted up on that cross, was he really paying the sin debt for sinners? Is your sin going to bring upon you the judgment of the Almighty God if you don't have a Savior? And is that Savior Jesus the Messiah? Every one of us is going to have to come to a point of answering that question. What will you do with Jesus? You cannot escape it. And in contemplating that situation with Pilate, Simpson wrote these words. What will you do with Jesus? Neutral, you cannot be. One day your heart will be asking, what will he do with me? Because the Bible says that one day this suffering servant will return in glory and judge the whole world. And what will it be then when you stand in the, in the judgment? Jesus said it this way, those who acknowledge me, I will acknowledge before my Father in heaven. They're mine. They're mine. You see them sprinkled with the blood? Those are my people. Those are the ones who are in awe of me. Those who reject, he says, I will reject them before God in heaven at that last judgment. Friend, you are, either you are either for him or you're against him. Come, ye sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded by the fall. Jesus ready stands to save you, full of pity, love, and power. I hope you can say, I will arise and go to Jesus. He will embrace me in his arms, in the arms of my dear Savior. Oh, there are 10,000 charms. Are you in awe of him? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Let's bow and consider this question in a very personal way. I ask you now not to think about those around you so much as really thinking about yourself. 
Are you in awe of the Savior? Have you called out to him in faith to wash you with his blood? There is one Savior. You must deal with him. You must either bow before him with love and devotion or you reject him. Can't be neutral. I hope you can say today, I will arise and go to Jesus. Take a moment and tell him, pray to him right now, quietly right where you sit. Take a moment to speak to the Lord God of heaven.